Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, Aaron. Third-year psychiatry resident Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hey, Aaron. Hey, everybody. And joining us after a hiatus, fourth-year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Joshua Poole. Hi, Joshua. Welcome back. How's it going, Dr. Poole? Uh, Joshua is currently pursuing additional training in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and also training in psychoanalysis, which comes in really handy because that is what we're going to talk about tonight. And those want to remind people the views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Yeah, we're on this episode, we're going to talk about whether how much clinicians psychoanalyze their friends and family and each other, and maybe a bit about training in psychoanalysis, uh, and, and fact and fiction and, and things like that. A lot of people have different ideas. I guess I'll start. Um, I'll say that I can't stop myself from using my psychological knowledge of human behavior with my relationships. But I will say this, I don't psychoanalyze. I feel like that's much heavier. <laughs> I feel like that because that involves things, I, I assume, I guess we're going to know tonight about uh, sexual stage, psychosexual stages and things like that. I don't do that. I will say this, that when I have a difficult, I, when I have a difficult interaction with someone and then I feel myself getting like heated, like uh, maybe angry or getting emotional, I suddenly start thinking, okay, what if this person was a client? How would I react or how would I respond? Because that puts me in a more controlled zone. I don't know if anyone else does that. And then I, I so I, what, but I want to throw this out there. How much do you do this? How little, when? Yeah, Aaron, I think you're you're confirming the fears of everyone. All the all the non all of our and probably many of the audience's non-psych friends are terrified. Are you psychoanalyzing me? Mm-hmm. Um, are you it's almost like an are you undressing me with your eyes kind of fear, it feels like. It's like this, we have this, and I, I actually wrote about it in my fellowship essays that when I was little, I used to think my dad could read my mind. My dad's a psychoanalytic trained psychiatrist. And and uh, I think what you said it, that rings true, which is yes, in some ways we're doing some of that, um, but it's it actually ends up serving our friends and loved ones. I think more than it hurts them. It you know our training is to help people, and so in the same way that you can be more patient in your interactions, we can recognize how better to to kind of be present for a situation. I don't think there's a lot of like non consensual judgmental. Uh, um, unraveling of the soul, but we'll see if Joshua, maybe Joshua, the one with the psycho psychoanalytic training, just, he really just got it so that he could non-consensually unravel can, people's souls. Can I jump in before Joshua gives his, uh, you know, expert opinion here? Um, I feel like, you know, for everyone in the general public, there is a certain level of analysis going on, isn't there? Like, that's what I always thought. Um, and I'm not psychoanalytically trained personally, so I wouldn't be able to psychoanalyze someone and depth, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I feel like my whole life I've thought about the motivations and perspectives of the people I'm talking to and how that, you know, is affecting their behavior or their interactions with me. Um, but I, I think, isn't everybody doing that? Yeah, I think so. I, and that's, that's the thing is that I'm, I'm not entirely sure, like, 
I feel like it would only ever have power over somebody if you believed that that's like an, what's actually going on. You know, a lot of people don't believe that it's a, a thing, you know, and how is it that the way I think about somebody, um, why would that be much different than like, let's say they judge me because of something I'm doing. Right. But the difference is it's not judgment. It's like, it's sort of just a perspective. It's like a worldview about how to organize and interpret or try to understand like how and why people are doing the things that they're doing. But small caveat here, I am in a two year psychoanalytic psychotherapy training program. So when I graduate, I'm, I'm not an analyst. I'd have to go undergo my own complete training analysis, which can take from like anywhere from four to 10 years is the equivalent of like a PhD. And then, um, it's, it's, it's a lot. So I will have psychoanalytically informed psychotherapy practice. So Joshua, you're in, um, analysis right now, three times a week. Yeah. Yeah. I just went to three times a week. Do you feel seen? (laughs) Um, that's a really good question. I feel that the space that I'm in gets held in such a way that I'm able to see myself a little bit more clearly. Mm. I don't know if that's like the biggest cop-out psychoanalysis answer, but. (laughs) Uh, So you feel like it is helping, it is benefiting your life. And it's, uh, you know, as far as the amount of time investment, that's one reason, you know, I, I didn't, because we were all, in the grad school, we were all, uh, you know, encouraged strongly to go to some sort of therapy or analysis, and but three times a week. Do you feel it's worth it? I do, yeah. I mean, I get up, and the only time I can do it as a resident who's in two additional training programs is at 7 a.m. So I wake up like clockwork to get there. There's something about it that's like, I recommend it. I've heard a couple of like full analysts say it's the cost of, uh, you know, thankfully my insurance covers a good amount of it. So it's not breaking the bank. Um, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of analysts say it's the cost of like a, a Ferrari or some, some crazy amount of thing over the course of several, several years or, uh, like a Lamborghini, but it's equivalent in value. Like they feel like it's worth it because of, I don't know. I feel different than I did six months ago having started it. Are you saying that if you bought a Lamborghini, you would feel different? I wouldn't. I would much rather use that money on analysis. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's saying something. something. But I am curious about the question that brought us in here, which was like, does everybody feel like we're doing this to them? And that's kind of an interesting thing, because have you guys seen those memes that are like uh, the mortifying ordeal of being known? No, what is that? It's this, it was from an essay. I think it was, I don't remember what year it was, but then they became like a meme and started circulating that people, the the quote was something along the lines of, in order to be loved, one must submit to the mortifying ordeal of being known. And I'm curious if at the core of what people don't like about the idea of like, oh, you're a psychiatrist, you're gonna psychoanalyze me, is like, are you, are you concerned that I might see you? Like- yeah. Wait, you're saying, sorry, you're saying that the people we're meeting, they're concerned about being seen by us. I think I think so too, because I, I mean, I'm thinking about it like, you know, the question I asked earlier, doesn't everyone do these things like l- look at why people behave the way they behave? I mean, I think that 
um, that is the basis of social skills, right? Like being able to mentalize and all of that. So everyone is doing that all the time. But I think people may feel scared of us in particular because they sometimes they think that we have a superpower of being able to like reveal their inner most like deepest darkest thoughts or secrets and then that'll be like on display or I also feel like sometimes people are they don't want to feel like they're pigeonholed into something because of some some identifier about them or like they don't want to feel defined by something and and do they don't I mean? want to be seen too fast. Like I think people do want to be seen, but they want to be seen by someone they trust with consent in time. And and I, I yeah, they don't want to be manipulated. Sure. Yeah, that's another part. Is like not just what will you see me, but what will you do with your right. psycho ninja skills? And and growing up with a dad who was that, I really believed in that. And to be honest, like you believed your dad was manipulating you. No, but I, well, manipulating is such a, is such a negative connotation word. Like if you, if you were to take away the negative connotation to just say someone had like really good skills for kind of parents do that, don't they? (laughs) Like that's part of their lessons to their kids. Like I'll do this or say this and then this will happen. But did you think that you were, he was treating you like a client, like or a patient, like you like, oh, if I, I remember if I, say this, if I do that, then you're going to do this and you're going to do this other thing I like, and I want. Yeah, there were there were definitely times when that was going on. And, and I don't really regret it. And to be honest, I went into psychiatry because I do think I, a big part of it, I think, is we do have a superpower to to change people, to help them live their best lives. And I had a supervisor um, once tell me. I wish I could. I want to give her credit on air, but I feel like I don't know if she'd want that. But um, she told me you know, that, that during her, I think, psychoanalytic training, she went through like Ericksonian psychoanalytic training and that some, one of her supervisors once told her that like put on her evaluation that she was highly manipulative. And then another supervisor took her aside and said, listen, like what we do is we learn how to kind of, you know, make people feel that they came to their own conclusion. And like a lot of what we do is manipulative, but we're doing it in people's best interest. We're doing it honestly. We're doing it transparently depending on the field, right? Some, some, schools of i think psychoanalysis is sometimes joshua you can weigh in on this but i think it's sometimes less transparent than like cbt act dbt um maybe because to be transparent about something that you took a phd equivalent of education to understand is sort of impossible um yeah no i think that brings up a really good point is that like I think there's this like idea in sort of the layperson or what you see in Woody Allen movies about what it is. I mean, I, I do lay on the couch and do that, do the whole nine um, because I wanted to like understand why that's done. Did they tell you to lay on the couch or did you just? Um, it was suggested, um, but it was not required. And I do find it's helpful because of just my own particular process, but I think that this idea that, you know, we're telling everybody that they have infantile sexuality, that, you know, everything is really related to some Oedipal triangle. I don't, I, I, that's not my experience. I think, you know, originally that's certainly how the field was, but it's certain it's progressed in a lot of ways. And, and most of therapy kind of owes itself to psychoanalysis in some way or another. I think the good psychoanalysis, psychoanalysts um, sort of the divining rod in psychoanalysis is uh, humility and uncertainty. 
it's it's that sort of curiosity like i don't know what's going on with you but i'm going to be curious about it with you and then i'm going to hold the space meaning be in the room with you and allow you to explore your process knowing that i'm like a resource for you in such a way that you can go and explore that but i think a good analyst i mean the reason you have to do it three times per week is you know at, at least is because nobody how could you possibly know why somebody is the way they are after just seeing them once? Some people say, are you psychoanalyzing me? I was like, no, I'm thinking about you, but I would need, I mean. Yeah, I'm the brain is just way that. too complex to be able to read someone like a map. But exactly. once you have an asymmetry between, you don't need to be able to read someone like a map, right? I think what the public is scared of um, is just that it's an, it's a, an, not a level playing field in terms of the tools we have versus the tools that they have, and maybe even not right. a level playing field in right. terms of the tools like I have versus the tools Joshua has that the psychoanalyst might have these tools. And I think that's valid. Yeah. No, you're right. Like what you said that we do have some level of super, like I, one of my supervisors, um, Dr. Feinstein, he was a guest on our show uh, before. Um, my co-residents in the years above me said that he would say, you know, you could say this thing and um, this is probably what they're going to say. And then they would try it out in therapy and the patient would say like the exact thing that he predicted. Um, I think with experience of doing therapy with lots of different people, you do get that experience. I have a question for you though, Joshua, like, um, so I'm wondering how many psychiatrists are taking the psychoanalytic course and then you know, as being kind of a fan of therapy or like kind of a therapy nerd, is there this leaning towards re receiving the most authentic psychoanalytic therapy where you are like, oh, no, 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 I have to lay on the couch and I have to, you know, I don't know, make it as authentic as possible? You know, that's a very good question because uh, it's so like at the institute that I'm at, I'm at the new center for psychoanalysis. Um, and they were only able to do it because they went online during the pandemic. And uh, in my class, it was about a 50-50 split between MDs and then non-MDs that were either PsyDs, PhDs. Uh, wow, 50-50. Okay, that's higher. That's a higher ratio than I was expecting. The, so it's a two-year program. And the second year, the new class um, is 14 people. And I think... 12 of them are MDs. Oh, most of those are residents. And I think that that's great. The quality of therapy training in at least West Coast uh, psychiatry residencies. It's in my in my personal experience, I don't think it's that like, I don't think it's that robust. And I think mm -hmm. it's very heavy cognitive behavioral. Yeah, no question. Yeah which for those that are interested in depth oriented types of psychotherapy, like Jungian analysis, relational, interpersonal, and uh, basically all the psychodynamic ones. I think that for those who are curious about it, there's something left wanting. Mm -hmm. For sure. There, there are other ways of, of experiencing depth and we'll, uh, I might say that after Aaron jumps in here. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're talking about uh, how much we as clinicians psychoanalyze uh, each other or just our friends and family and just psychoanalysis and psychoanalysis training. Uh, it, before you, uh, Alan, I've been, I've been meaning to kind of um, ask this question to everybody and, and maybe particularly with Joshua. I, th I think that there can be a difference 
if uh, folks are psychoanalytically trained compared to, like you were saying, trained with uh, behavioral uh, approaches or CBT, because, all right, I think that there's an assumption that everything I do has this added implication that it doesn't mean what it means. And I felt like, um, you know, if, if I accidentally slammed the door, you know, what, because I had a colleague that had a supervisor that, you know, when it, it, anytime he did something, he would always assume something else. Like, I, you know, I didn't know you had that much aggression because you slammed the door and because nothing's unintentional, you know, but that, but he, his mind, it was an accident. So that I think that that can be different uh, because uh, there's always this, these added implications, possibly that there's an idea that we are just controlled by these, you know, psychosexual forces. And, and I, I, I lose some humanity in that. What, what are your thoughts though? Oh man, I, I actually very much disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I think when someone slams the door, it means I, it like, I think psychoanalytic training makes you think about stuff in a very different way so that everything becomes quote unquote, this is the phrase everybody uses ad nauseum is grist for the mill because you know, sometimes people just get frustrated about stuff. You know, they slam the door, but why? What was frustrating them? Why was that frustrating? Does that fit into a larger pattern or into a narrative of something that you can, you can really get into and quickly work down into some like deep layer stuff that once you start looking for patterns, I mean, our brains are pattern recognition machines, you can find them. And if it helps you feel that you understand yourself a little bit better, that agency allows you to make change or at least have some feeling of comfort with that agency or knowing yourself a little bit better. Mm. That's my theory. I feel like I, I want to call back to this, that debate. We, we did an episode way long ago where we were all kind of debating. Um, but Josh and I got particularly intense about debating like the behavioral world, CBT, DBT act. We even off screen too. Like in our yes. own free time. <laughs> yeah, we do that when we hang out. Um, and, and I've come a long way towards kind of being, I'm, I'm much more on your side with this stuff. But I do want to harass you now um, about when, when I'm thinking about these different ways of kind of how we might serve or not serve the public around us. When I mean, even in my interactions with you, I'm excited when we hang out. But I also do feel like, oh, he's got this new thing like I feel like I'm going to be seen in interesting new ways that are somewhat scary, which is interesting because like I I'm far from the, like our public friends who, who, who have our, public, our, you know, our non-psychiatric friends, you know, I grew up being seen by a psychoanalyst and an analyst. Um, I feel like with act with, well, okay. In terms of depth, that's the point you're making earlier, right? You're right. Like behavioral approaches don't have as much depth unless you start thinking about the mindfulness interventions. I think that's a self-actualization that I would argue, and maybe this is just my own bias, right? But I would argue it rivals that of psychoanalysis that like, I think, you know, for me, I feel like my meditation practice is, gives me something that I can at least tell myself that, oh, well, this is really deep too. And I can feel better about the fact that I haven't yet done psychoanalysis, but to our friends, I wonder whether, what would you, who would you rather have as a friend? Someone who can see you really deeply and maybe has a unique perspective on seeing you, but um, maybe it doesn't go much farther than that versus someone who has this like huge armamentarium of admittedly shallow tools, 
with which to help you get over your stuff, right? So like when I, I, when my friends are going through relationship stuff, I role play it with them. They role play it with me. When I have negative thoughts, I bring them out to my friends and we do, we, we do like a therapy, a little bit of improv, a little bit of CBT informed stuff together. Not that you don't also have the tools to do this stuff, but I think what we're really offering people, psychiatrists, psychoanalysts with, and with our behavioral tools is like, yeah, we can be there for your problems in a way that not that we're going to act as therapists, but we can use some of those tools to be there for people in our personal lives in a really special way. That I think is attention. And I'd love to hear Aaron and Tush what you guys think about this, because that is, that is attention that I, I feel almost daily, which is I desperately do not want to analyze. I don't want to be a therapist to the, to my loved ones. I don't want to have that role because it's like we've talked about earlier, it's a differential of power in some sort. And then also it puts me, it basically makes me work when I don't want to work. I want to be on an equal playing field with somebody. I want to see and be seen. Right. But like, if I'm the one with an analytic tool, for instance, and I apply it, they don't have that tool back. I'm not going to be seen that same way. And that to me feels like an absence of, of love in the sense of love being in sort of an equality back and forth. I feel the same way, Joshua. I don't, I don't feel comfortable. Like, um, when someone says, well, what would you say when I go to someone for advice about a relationship or something and they say, well, what would you say to a patient? I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to apply that into my relationships. Um, I feel the same way. It creates a power differential. And I mean, the people I'm in relationships with aren't interested in, you know, um, gaining insights. They just want me to hear hear them and whatever problem we're discussing at that time. They're not like looking for help from me. Well, I, let me just say briefly is that I feel like, um, you know, friends and family uh, actually don't see me as a psychologist or use me as a psychologist. But I will say that in beginning friendships, like I can kind of review in my mind, it happens very early on in the relationship. Like you're a psychologist, this, this treating me like a psychologist and not a person. Um, like you're a psychologist, tell me about blah, blah, blah. It happens early on. But then after you become friends, it never happens again. That's my opinion. It just never happens again. And there's also- they don't least, like the advice. They, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tosha just laid a burn. Way too quick, you know? Wait, what, sorry, what was that, Joshua? Yeah, what was that? My, my worry is that people find out I'm full of baloney way too quick. And that like, I, they're not going to come to me advice after when they're like, oh, no, he's- This quack. Yeah, he's, This guy's full of baloney. He's really making this up as he goes along, isn't he? And then I can be friends with you because I'm not on a pedestal and you see yeah. me acting. Uh, Joshua, do people treat you like it's almost like a, a game or a parlor thing that you're like, hey, Joshua, analyze me. This is what I did last night and this is what I dreamed. And hey, go. Do they do any of that? or? You know, I don't. I, since the pandemic, I'm not around people that aren't patients. Oh, that okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to say that. I'm going to ask you that later on. Thank you. I invite you guys to, to re-examine some of the, the kind of, I feel like right now there's this dichotomy being set up of like, oh, um, that you guys don't, the three of you even don't want to be psychologists in your, in your daily lives and stuff. And, and I don't know, I, I'll, I'll put myself out there a little bit, but I also, you guys are my friends and I tend to have friends. Most of my friends are in the psych field and most of my friends are people who really value interest, introspection and insight and self-actualization. I tend to do, I tend to do a lot of this kind of stuff with them and it doesn't feel like an unequal playing field, 
part, maybe because they're in psych, maybe because they have other ways of understanding the world that they bring into it. And it's kind of like a, an alliance for, for experimentation and fun and um, play and moving forward as humans and trying to understand each other as humans. And, and the idea that like the two of you, well, actually the three of you aren't bringing your, yeah, you're not well recommending Wellbutrin to your friends, right? And you're not you're not finding pathologic pathological patterns in your friends and and planning out how maybe in five sessions that might there might be the insight for that. But are you not occasionally helping someone see when like their negative thoughts are not super accurate or asking someone for help doing the same? Can I take a stab at this one? Um, I feel like um, it, it very rarely happens. It, it does happen occasionally, but I'll say that what's more common, I have a friend that has panic disorder, depression, anxiety, and what is your recommendation? Because this is what they do and this is how bad. That does happen uh, uh, it t- from time to time. Oh, that feels professional. That part freaks that me. That sounds, that's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because that's like, that starts to sound like liability. That starts to sound like real, like you're on the hook. This person is now asking for real clinical advice. But if it's like, I'm getting over this breakup and we're on a hike together, why not but have when, a, why not use a ask- fun team CBT method? Why not do some yeah. role play? You know? But does that say something about your relationship more than the fact that you're a psychiatrist? I mean, just like, you know, does that, I mean, would they be asking you that if, I don't know, you, did, you were just a, a, just a, meta, just a regular, regular doctor <laughs> or you're a social worker? I think, I think there's also something to be said about like when it's close to home with your family and friends, like you don't want to shit where you eat. You know what I mean? Like, excuse the, but you know what I mean? Like the, things are close to home. And if you you're you're feeling things on an emotional level very differently from the way you feel in your clinic. And I mean, it could go well, it could go very poorly. And I would argue that people if you somebody just broke up with their like significant other and they're coming to you, they probably want, ugh, for lack of a better term, aff- affective attunement, right? They probably want somebody who's just there and like being present with them more right. than oh, have you considered identifying your negative cognitions around that? Which is a therapy skill, <laughs> right? Affective attunement <laughs> is a therapy skill. I think it's a mom skill. That's the analyst in me. <laughs> mom skill. We we put these terms on to make it like more scientific, but like, and this is okay. Small aside, this is a hill I will die on. But like, when we say things like unconditional positive regard we mean love, right? Like, but you can't say love in the literature, but like, that's kind of, that's kind of what we mean, right? Agreed. Yeah, wow. Yeah. You're that's talking a good point. about the, the, for listeners, you're talking about the way that practitioners hold their patients in unconditional positive regard. Yeah. Facilitative conditions, client-centered approaches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, it's like, because in a Western model, you, you can't say, we well, got to love your patient because that. Mm-hmm. No, that's fair. That's a fair point. But I think. I like that. Alan, to your point, is like, yes, effective attunement. But what I really mean is like, hey, man, I'm, I'm, I'm showing up. I'm tuning in. What's going on? So, like, given that psychoanalysis, like true orthodox psychoanalysis, is not very popular these days, um, what made you, Joshua, interested in pursuing that? You know, I, I still have a lot of tension with like early early analysis and stuff like when in the course when I read Freud I think this is uh, sacrilege or anathema to the cause but I don't like it I think he bugs me 
and um, I don't like the psychosexual stuff. Like it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But when I think about it, as it's progressed into like understanding uh, triangles or understanding dynamics or like thinking about things more in a relational pattern, that sort of the genius of Freud kind of comes through. And I'm like, okay, I, I get it. I kind of see what's going on there. But the thing that drew me to it was, you know, my other, my other interest psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. There's a lot of depth oriented stuff that goes on in that type of work. And I feel like <laughs> technical you know, term depth oriented stuff. Yeah. They should package, uh, they should package the like new S ketamine, um, inhaler by saying depth oriented stuff, depth oriented stuff <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and electrolytes or something <laughs> with even more electrolytes. Yeah. There's vitamin D or whatever. And it. it doesn't matter. It costs too much money and it doesn't work that well. Jansen, don't come at me. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today we talked about uh, whether or not we cycle, how much we psychoanalyze each other as clinicians. And also we talked a little bit about psychoanalytic training with our special uh, rejoiner host. Thank you for joining us, uh, Joshua. Special. Thank you. And also thank you, our, our regular co-hosts. Doctors Toshi Yamaguchi, Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. And you can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us, post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. <laughs>